Now, how does uh, one describe the Christian life? Hmm? The Christian life, I would say, first slide comes up, is not a life that is restricted by do's and don'ts. It's not a life that is controlled by thou shall and thou shall not. Instead, the Christian life is a renewed life which uh, lives out uh, the because and therefore, next slide, the Christian life is a changed life living out the since dot 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 and then. And so remember that because, therefore, and since, then. And we see that pattern and we see that thought throughout the letter to the Romans. For instance, because of God's mercy, because we have received God's mercy, therefore, an appeal follows to respond accordingly. And so verse 1 tells us, for instance, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so because we are sinners who have been made righteous by Jesus' death, since we were enemies whom God reconciled with, made friends with, because we receive mercy from God, therefore, a response follows. A response that comes in the form of an appeal. And Paul says, I appeal to you to now present your bodies, to present now your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, when the Romans think of the word sacrifice, uh, they must have thought of uh, literal animals and fire, maybe even martyrdom. But whatever it is, it involves the loss of life. So they're not entirely wrong. But the ultimate and final sacrifice has already been offered to God, Jesus. And so he gave his life in order to atone for our sins. And his perfect sacrifice ended the need for further sacrifices. This is why Paul now calls for a different kind of sacrifice. He calls it what? He calls it a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Now, friends, the phrase sounds like an oxymoron. You know what's an oxymoron, right? Oxymoron, it's a word where you have two opposite ideas joined together. So example of an oxymoron would be open secret. So is it secret or is it open to the public? Oxymoron. Another example of an oxymoron is, and the teens should remember this, organized mess. Okay, so your parents tell you, hey, your room, you need to tidy it up. Organized mess. It's an oxymoron. Living sacrifices sound like an oxymoron, two opposite ideas joined together. But it does make sense, you know. It does make sense because Paul calls living sacrifice our spiritual worship. Spiritual, meaning that it's logical, that it's rational, that it's reasonable worship, that it is sensible after all. Why? Because in view of God's mercy, because of God's mercy, having understood what Christ has done for us, it is rational. It is fitting to offer our lives 
which means the way we live our lives henceforth. It is fitting to offer our lives to him as our worship. And then he explains how spiritual worship is offered. Next slide. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So spiritual worship is to quit conformity to the world, to stop and quit being shaped by the ways of the world. Instead, having been transformed or transformed by the Spirit, we are now to continue renewing our minds. We are now to take on a different thought about things that is dissimilar to the thoughts of the old life, a different thought that is unlike to the world's way of thinking. So in short, it is to quit conforming to the world, but now conform to God, obeying His revealed will, approving, agreeing, concurring that God's will is good and His will is perfect. And we concur, we agree, we approve by obeying or by putting them into practice. And Paul continues and he shows us that spiritual worship entails the renewal of our minds, which means that we are shifting away from old thinking. We are shifting away from the old life, abandoning the ways of the world and moving to embrace God's ways. And Paul shows us the different shifts that happen to a living sacrifice. First point, it is a shift from self-worth to others' worth. So um, verse 3 tells us, next slide, For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Then he continues, next slide, he says in verses 4 to 5, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, and so we, though are many, we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So what is Paul telling us? He's telling us that the church, the body of Christ, exists as a body with members, with members belonging to the same body, members who have uh, different functions, and despite their non-identical functions, they exist united as one, as one sharing the same faith, faith in the Lord Jesus, and as one being bestowed with God's gracious gifts. So in other words, believers, we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we all share the same faith and blessed with the same grace. And it is through the lens of that same faith and grace that we will look at ourselves and evaluate ourselves. And so if we do that, what do we see? Well, we see that we are all members of a body, created differently with different functions, and yet we are connected together to exist as one body. And so this is a very important perspective because with this, with this perspective, a believer will no longer overvalue himself. 
he will no longer undervalue himself, undervalue or overvalue his gifts. Why? Because now he sees himself as a gifted part of the body. He's a gifted part of the body with the purpose of blessing the other parts. And he sees himself as a part of the body with a constant need to be blessed by other parts of the body. So he no longer sees himself as the only important part of the body. Rather, he sees other as equally important. So in the body of Christ, you are important, I am important, every part of the body is important. And so this living sacrifice, having renewed his mind, will now make a shift from an attitude of self-worth to others' worth. You are equally worthy as I am. He will now exercise his gifts faithfully in order to bless others because others are worthy. At the same time, he seeks to be blessed by others, others' worth. That is now is how we must view ourselves. That is how we must view others. And so there is no more overvaluing the self or undervaluing the self. There is no undervaluing others because God has graciously scattered gifts to different members so that we will depend on one another. And so from verses 6 to 8, Paul, he lists different gifts that God gave to the members in the Roman church. And he tells us, you have prophecy, you have service, you have teaching, encouragement, le giving, leadership, and doing acts of mercy. The list here, my friends, if you look at your Bible, is not exhaustive. It's not complete because there are many more other gifts. What's listed here are not the only gifts that God gives. Why? Because at different times in the church, God gives, gives gifts according to the church's need, according to the needs of the church. And so today, for example, you see the gift of prophecy in the sense of the re-proclamation of the word. At times, you are blessed by the gift of translating, which is a slight variation of proclaiming the word. You also have the gift of service, or what we may sometimes refer to as ushering, or in our church, or in God's church here in ARPC, it's uh, the gift of being an SOM. Did you know that that's a gift? Gift of being a servant of the month, or the gift of being in a committee. We, too, have the gift of teaching, the gift of music, playing musical instruments or singing, the gift of encouragement, the gift of writing, and the list goes on. Gifts are any skills, listen, are any skills that God has gifted to His children, skills that you are good at, skills that you enjoy doing, and through which people are blessed and helped. That's your gift. And so what does a renewed man do about the gifts that God has given him or her? Well, Paul tells us, use them. Use them. You see that? Use them. In the NIV translation, it is emphasized by the repetition of the phrase, let him. Let him use it. Let him serve. Let him teach. Let him, let him. In other words, now that we have been renewed from self-worth, 
to others' work, we must let others use their gifts in the church. And uh, you know what this means? It means that you must not grab all ministry platforms for yourselves. Why? Because you and I are not gifted with all gifts. Please remember that. So example, you never see me leading in singing. Why? Because I am not gifted in that area. I am the Filipino who cannot sing. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. Because God gave us differing gifts according to His grace. And I am to let the one gifted in singing serve God's people with their gifts and according to their gifts. And so the living sacrifice, the one who has his mind renewed, will move away from self-worth to others' worth. He will rely and he will depend and he will seek to be built up by others who are gifted with gifts that he was not assigned with. And he is going to be okay with it. That is the new perspective of the one who has his mind renewed by the Spirit. Next point, another shift, is there is a shift from insincere love to sincere love. Insincere love to sincere love. You know, the world's love is a love that is done in order to get something out of it. That's the world's kind of love. The world will love you in order to get something from it. The world's love is a like that is masked with love. You know, in weddings, I'd always love to mention in my sermon that there is a huge different, difference between like and love. Did you know that? It's a huge difference, day and night. And, but then the problem is that people always use them interchangeably because that is what the world does. They use the world interchangeably uses or uses interchangeably like and love. Example, you love ice cream or you love Japan. And then in messages that you send, you sometimes send a heart. Oh, sorry. It's like this. Yeah. Or like this. You send a heart to express love. But actually, you meant like. You don't mean love. You didn't mean love. You meant like. And like and love are not the same. And so when you say you like someone, why do you say that? Well, it is because you derive something from that person. That's why you like the person. You get something from him or you get something from her. Say he makes you laugh, you know, or she, she is able to give you some understanding. Or, or when you say, but when you say you love someone, you give the person something. You give her happiness. You give up things for him or her. And so like and love are not the same. Because like is devoid of commitments. Like does not have sacrifice. Love, on the other hand, it promises commitment. Love gives up the self for the other. And so I would love to always tell the ladies, ladies, listen carefully. When a man tells you, I like you, how do you respond? Don't let it flutter your heart. But rather say, I know, I get that a lot. But when a man tells you, I love you, 
then you respond by saying, do you even know what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, because love requires sacrifice. It requires commitment. And you, when you do that and you ask that question, it may not be romantic, but you may end up with a man who understands what love's, love is. It is the giving up of oneself for the other. That is sincere love. Otherwise, it's pseudo-love. It's fake love, or a.k.a. like. Now, Paul says the living sacrifice abandons insincere love and embraces the practice of genuine love. He says, let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection, he says. And such love is evidenced by showing honor. Such love is evidenced by celebrating in times of celebration and mourning in times of sorrow. So Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, and in so doing, never be wise in your own sight. And so such love is shown by giving value to the other, regardless of position, regardless of economic status. And come to think of it, such love is sacrificial, isn't it? Because when you honor the other, when you honor the other, you know what happens? You give up pride, right? That's why you honor the other. When you rejoice with those who rejoice, when you mourn with those who mourn, you give up apathy. Because being apathetic is very easy, right? All you need to do is just boch up, right? But when you rejoice with those who rejoice, celebrate with those who celebrate, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, you give up apathy. And then when you associate with the lowly and listen to them, you give up self-importance. So even those who belong to a lowly status have some wisdom to share with you. And so you give up self-importance. Why? Because love, genuine love, gives up the self for the other. Next shift. Sorry, the sermon is not going to be short. It's a shift from approving evil to abhorring what is evil. Approving evil, no more of that, but now abhorring what is evil. Now Paul exhorts the Christian that in view of the mercy of God, to change his perspective about evil. It is to turn from approving evil to now abhorring evil. Now listen, the world knows what evil is. For example, the world will always describe gruesome crimes as evil. So I read of a woman named Lucy Letby. She is the hospital nurse in the UK who was convicted for life. Why? Because she murdered seven babies in her care. And so the news would label her as somebody who fits the sentence because of the evil that she's done. The world also labels uh, terror attacks as sheer evil. And I'm quoting Biden. The world knows what evil is, yet the world will approve of evil and use evil. Example, the world will encourage you, repay evil for evil. Or a nicer way to put it, don't get angry, just get even. 
So the world will tell you, repay evil for evil. So when somebody cuts your lane, what do you do? You give him a long honk. Or you overtake, roll down the window and curse him. That's what the world will, will tell you. It's okay. But the living sacrifice will no longer conform to the world. We are told instead to abhor what is evil, which means never resort to evil. So Paul says, repay, next slide, repay no one evil for evil, but instead to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And so what is the honorable thing to do when evil is done to you? Paul says in verse 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. And so what is the honorable response? Well, it is to try your best to maintain peace with everybody. And how do you do that? You leave all matters to God's hand. Because the Lord says, never avenge ourselves because he is your avenger. It's not the Marvel superheroes, huh? The Lord is your avenger. Leave it to God, Paul says, to repay evil. Surrender the matter to God. That is our passive response, if I may. Then the active response is found in the next verse, in verse 20. Paul says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. So our active response is to still do good to our enemy. And Paul uh, uh, quotes a proverb. You'll find that in Proverbs 25. He quotes a proverb about putting coals on one's head. Now, there have been various interpretations to try to explain this proverb. I think it is a picture of one carrying coals, embers, to bring it home, or rather to bring them home for cooking or for heating. And so at a time when there's no electricity, at a time when there's no uh, piped-in gas, it was common for people to source wood, coal outside. And at times, asking your neighbor or your fellow for glowing coals. And so when you heap glowing coals on your fellow's head, because that was how they carried it, or rather them, safely when you heap burning coals on the basket on top of their head on their head what do you do you help him warm his home you help him get his food cooked in short if your enemy is in need of food drink or heat don't give him the evil that he deserves provide him the good that he needs why? Because Jesus says, this is what sons of the Heavenly Father do. The Heavenly Father, you know what He does? He gives sun and rain both to the righteous and to the wicked. And so Jesus says, that's what you do because you are children of the Father. 
And that's what the Father does. He doesn't just send sun and rain to the righteous and then the wicked get drought or the wicked get cold. But rather, despite their wickedness, God provides them their need. And so the living sacrifice is not to approve evil. He is not to use evil. On the contrary, he is to abhor it by overcoming evil with good, by repaying evil with kindness. That's not easy, isn't it? Who says it's easy? I say it's not. And the pastor, too, is also learning. May God help us. Next point. There is a shift from occasionally doing good to now persistently doing good. Occasional good to now persistently doing good. You know, friends, doing good occasionally is easy. It's easy because the world does that. She does respond when the season calls for it. And so, example, Christmas is a busy time to do good. But we, as living sacrifices, we are called to persistently do good. And so Paul tells us in verses 11 to 13, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And so in conforming to God, believers must cling on to what is good. That means not choosing to do good once in a while, example, Christmas season, but rather that good should be something that we are always passionate about. And so Paul says, for instance, it is good to serve the Lord zealously. It is good to rejoice even in the midst of trials, constantly praying, constantly crying out to the Lord, always placing our hope in the ultimate relief that will happen when Jesus returns. So recently, I just finished uh, reading, once again, the book of Job. It is not an easy book uh, to read and to swallow. I remember trying to read it but never finishing it. The book of Job, you're familiar with it. Satan places a bet with God that the righteous Job is rendering worship. Why? Because God has blessed him with a good life. And so Satan tells God, he says, well, you know what? Take it all away, and I bet that Job will drop the faith. I bet that Job is going to leave God. But Job did not leave God. You know what he did? He hung on to him. He cried out to him. He complained to him. He hoped in him. He demanded an audience with him. And uh, what was God's response in the end? Well, we read that God was angry at Job's friends. At his friends, but not at Job. Why was God angry at his friends? We read that God was angry at his friends. Why? Because they didn't speak right of God. But we do not read of God getting angry at Job. In fact, Job became the mediator who is supposed to pray for his friends because whom God is angry with. Why wasn't God angry at Job unlike he was angry at his friends? Well, the big difference between Job and the friends was that the friends spoke about God. The friends tried to explain God, but Job spoke to God. 
Job confessed that he cannot understand God's mysterious ways. And so in all this, Job did not abandon God. He did not shipwreck his faith. And that is the good that we ought to persist in. The good of hopeful dependence on God no matter what. Verse 13 speaks of another good that we must persist in. We are exhorted to contribute to the needs of God's people. We are to seek to always show hospitality. You know, if you travel enough, you will discover that there are people groups who are known for their hospitality, right? Uh, more than others. But believers, no matter what people group uh, you belong to, believers are to be characterized by their hospitality, which means that we are all, should be always be willing to give up convenience in order to serve others. So I once uh, 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 saw a woman uh, walking lost during a school day inside the school premises, and I asked her, can I help you? And she wanted to know where the nearest convenience store was. Do you know where the nearest convenience store is? Uh, there's a 7-Eleven over here. Am I right? Is this here? It's about 10 minutes walk, uh, but she didn't have enough time. And so I asked her, uh, is there anything that you need? Turns out that she was looking to get a quick bite uh, because she's not had breakfast. And, uh, she is, uh, and the canteen was closed. And so I said, can I offer you a cup of Milo and some crackers? And so I invited her to the church office. Do you know that we have a church office here? It's here. <laughs> I invited her to the church office and I explained that we are a church that meets in the school. And so I prayed that that small act of kindness and hospitality will have been used by God who calls us to show hospitality to strangers. Why? Come to think of it, our God is the hospitable God. Because he renovated this formless world. And then he made man and woman and he invites man and woman to come and dwell with him. In short, he created this beautiful dwelling for man and woman and he welcomes them to dwell with him. God is a hospitable God. He is a welcoming God. And so hospitality, look at the slide, prayerfulness, zeal, they are the good that we must persevere. We are to hold fast to what is good, Paul tells us in verse 9. Next point, I'm almost done. It is a shift from resistance to respect. And so in case you have not noticed, we are now in chapter 13. Chapter 13 shows us that the living sacrifice moves away from resistance to respect. Now, I was told that Singapore's favorite pastime is complaining. You got it. And we complain a lot about the government. But as living sacrifices, the appeal is to turn away from resistance and to turn to respect with regards to authorities. So Paul tells us in chapter 13, verses 1 to 2, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so we are called to respect instead of resisting or opposing authorities. And so if we are called to respect them, what is the least thing that we can do for the government? Well, the least that we can do as living sacrifices is to pray for our government. So Proverbs uh, chapter 11 tells us that a nation that lacks guidance fails, but many advisors ensure victory. And so rulers, they need wise and godly advice. And the need for God-fearing and wise advisors for our leaders cannot be overstated. And so you recall the story of Joseph who went to Egypt. Egypt survived a famine. How so? Through the wise counsel of Joseph. In God's wise plan of saving the line of Jacob, through whom we have the Lord Jesus, the Savior Jesus, in God's wise plan, Joseph's gift of discernment and wisdom from God blessed his superiors. It blessed the rulers of Egypt. It helped Pharaoh and it blessed Egypt. And of course, later on, we read that it saved Joseph's own family who migrated to Egypt during the famine because it was all in God's plan to preserve his people and then later on to call out a nation to himself. And so we must never discount God's calling for us to bless the people around us with our knowledge of God's will. And so if rulers, if governments can benefit from wise and godly advice, we must pray for God to place God-fearing people in advisory positions or place God-fearing people in positions of authority so that God's desire to bless and save will be achieved. And Paul reiterates this point that I'm making, the importance of interceding for people in authority. He says in 1 Timothy, it is so that we may live or rather lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So the Bible tells us that our rulers are ordained by God. The Bible tells us that God puts them in power. For what reason? For the purpose of restraining evil in the society. So just imagine, you know, have you ever thought of that? Just imagine what it's like if a country has no government. Now, people like to use the phrase, Bo Hu, right? Whenever you drive across to another country, right? Just imagine a country that does not have a government where everybody is free to do what he wants, uh, uh, free to do what is right in his or her own eyes. The result is going to be, it's going to be massive chaos, disorderliness, spread of disease, looting, loss of lives, loss of properties. And so we must thank God that in his wisdom, he installed a government over us to curtail evil. And the government has given to us too to commend us when we do right. So Paul says, do what is good and you will receive his approval. So the government exists to punish, but he also exists to commend. You know, a few years back, I received a letter from the traffic police and I got nervous. Yeah, but when I opened it, turns out that 
It was a letter of commendation <laughs> that I've been a good driver for the past five years. For a moment, I thought that I run the red lights or use the bus lane. Yeah, so it feels good to be commended by the authorities, doesn't it? And occasionally, we read of such in the papers when the public, when the civilian, you know, uh, does an exemplary act for the community. He gets a commendation from the authorities. So Paul says, submit to the authorities. Why? Because they are God sent to punish who do wrong, those who do wrong, and to also commend those who do right. Submit to them, very importantly, with a renewed mind, which means that you pay what you owe to the authority, which means that the believer owes the government taxes in the form of GST, buyer stamp duties, ERP, road tax, income tax, and we are called to pay the authorities what we owe. And whenever you and I pay, we must, pay, we must not pay grudgingly. <laughs> because we are called to shift from resistance to now respect. We are supposed to pay with respect, cheerfully, with respect and honor. And Paul lumps together the payment of taxes, revenues, respect and honor under his exhortation to our ruler's uh, exaction of taxes. Next, last point. There is a shift from self-centeredness to others-focused. Self-centeredness self-centeredness to others-focused. So Paul tells us in uh, verses 8 to, to uh, 9, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. And Paul says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus was asked what was the great commandment, the Lord replied with a two-point summary of the Ten Commandments. He said to the inquirer, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he says, the second is this. The second is what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now the Apostle Paul quotes this, and then he reiterates that the prohibition to commit adultery, murder, steal, covet, etc., they are summed up by the phrase, you shall love your neighbor. You shall love your fellow. Why is it a summary of loving your fellow? Why so? Why? Because when you commit, for example, adultery, you seek your own pleasure with little regard for others. No regard for your God-given spouse, for example. No regard for your God-given children. So when you commit adultery, you seek your own pleasure without regard for others. And then when you commit murder, you desire that which you fail to get. And so you kill your fellow. And James gives an insight to the root of murder in his letter, letter of James. Then when you steal, you want something with zero expense on your part but at the expense 
of your fellow. And so you care little that someone incurs a loss as a result of your theft, as a result of your pilferage. That's what happens when you steal. You want something with zero expense on your part, but at the other person's expense. And then lastly, when you covet, you know what happens? You will refuse to rejoice that your fellow has something that you don't. Let me repeat that. When you covet, you will refuse to rejoice that your neighbor has what you do not. Example, he's got the faster car. Mine is just 1.5 liters. He's got the bigger house. He's got, she's got the higher pay. He secured a place in his dream school. She's got a boyfriend. And so you do not rejoice that your neighbor has something that you do not have. Adultery, murder, coveting, stealing, they're all acts of self-centeredness without regard for others. And as a result, they are all acts that harm others. But those who have experienced God's mercy are to move away from self-centeredness to now being others-focused. And so in closing, how is a Christian life lived? It's not about do's and don'ts or following thou shall and thou shall not. It's really about because and therefore. Because we were enemies of God, made friends. Because of the mercy that we received from God, we therefore now offer our lives, our all, as a living sacrifice. No longer conforming to the patterns and the ways of the world, but renewing our minds, approving that God's will of considering others worthy, of practicing sincere love, abhorring evil, doing good persistently, of respecting instead of resisting, of always concerned about others. This is our reasonable, rational, sensible life worship. And our prayer should be that God empower you and I to always offer Him the worship that is rightfully His. Let's pray. Lord, we once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were once dead in sin and by default, children of wrath. But because of your rich mercy, you made us alive in Jesus, who died and rescued us from sin. You've shown us the kindness that we did not deserve. And so it is fitting for us only to offer our lives to you, the life that you've saved, back to you as an act of our spiritual worship. Help us, we pray, to quit conforming to the ways of the world, but to conform instead to your will, to the glory of your name, and for our holiness that is truly good for us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.